So I just have a couple of questions to get us started uh, this morning. What do you look forward to? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear a question like that? What, what are you looking forward to? Uh, what are you looking forward to this week? You know, what, what, do you, what gets you up? What gets you through? You know, what are you looking forward to this week, this, uh, this month, this year? What are you looking forward to in life that gets you up and gets you through? What's the prize, I guess, is another way of saying it. What's, what's that reward that energizes you to push harder when you've got nothing left? Now, I know a bunch of you, and I know that uh, for some of you, the answer is, are you kidding me? I, I'm just surviving. Uh, I'm just grinding through. I'm just doing the next thing. I'm just fulfilling responsibility. I'm just managing thorns and thistles as best as I can till it's over. Uh, and I have a lot of sympathy for you because I'm an Eeyore too. But, um, <clears throat> but that's why I love the rhythm of the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, this rhythm here. Uh, without realizing it, Jeff already used the word twice, uh, talk about the Holy Spirit setting me up. This is a reset. That's what this is meant to do. This Lord's Day rhythm is meant to reset us and remind us of what's really real. Uh, it's meant to give us a, a dose of reality that humbles us, and a dose of hope anchored in certainty that energizes us. That's what should happen on a regular basis when we, when we gather. But it can't happen uh, unless we both want it and we look to the Holy Spirit to give us that. So let me pray right now. Father, we've already come to you in prayer and we come to you again because we're needy people. You and you alone know the condition of every single person in this room, everyone listening. So be the great physician. We trust you for that this morning. Give us a dose of reality that humbles us and remind us of our hope that is anchored in certainty to energize us. We pray in Jesus' name now. Amen. So this book of Philippians that we're going through, and we're in chapter 3 right now, uh, we've come to this sort of chapter that, in a, in a short sense, we could say that the title of this is Pressing Toward the Prize. That's what chapter 3 is all about. It's a nice title, kind of works, uh, but it, it lacks, in my mind, it lacks some sort of applicational traction. Uh, so I think a better way to think about this would be to think of uh, the description it gives of a local church or a description of believers here, that they are hope-filled, humble strivers for the prize. And the prize has at least four different definitions in this chapter. It's described as knowing Christ Jesus, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. It's described as attaining the resurrection from the dead. Uh, it's described as perfection, pressing on to become perfect, complete. And it's defined as the upward call of God uh, in Christ Jesus. So we're going to take a look today and probably next week too uh, at this simple phrase here, this hope-filled, humble strivers for the prize. And so we'll start with just this idea of 
of humble strivers, not proud strivers, but humble strivers. And it comes in verse 12 of chapter 3. And by the way, that passage, the passage we're looking at is actually in your bulletin too, on the uh, inside uh, of your bulletin as well there. At the very first verse, chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, listen, I want you to know something. Not that I've already obtained this, meaning the prize, or I'm already perfect. Now, this may seem a little strange, right, to some of you? Like, why does Paul have to tell the Philippians that he's not perfect? Can you imagine if I stood up here and said, hey, you guys, I want you to know something. I know this is going to surprise you. I am not perfect. Uh, it, doesn't, it just doesn't sort of ring well with our ears. What's going on there? Well, let me, let me digress for just a second here. Um, how many of you have ever heard of the Methodist Church? Okay, don't worry. I'm not going to slam the Methodist here today, okay? So the Methodist Church came out of the Church of England. It was primarily started by two brothers, John and Charles Wesley, in the early 1700s. The Church of England, for many generations, had become increasingly lifeless. It just was kind of a, a dead place. And so there was a group of people who began to gather for Bible study and prayer and things that, things that seemed normal to us, but were actually not normal behavior in the high, liturgy, high liturgical Church of England. In fact, they began to be ridiculed for their methods. That's the name. Now, John and Charles Wesley were, I'm, I have no doubt, were godly believers led by the Holy Spirit who rightfully diagnosed the sickness of the Church of England and began a process of bringing it back to renewal and health. But sometimes you can be so focused on something that you lose sight of the gospel. That's the thing about the gospel. You have to be careful. You can overemphasize something and get yourself in trouble. And that's what happened with John and Charles Wesley, particularly John, in this doctrine called the doctrine of perfectionism, the idea that it's possible as a Christian to actually go through life and not sin and actually reach a state of perfection. So when you come to a verse like 12 in chapter 3, it was troubling for someone to say, wait a second, Paul says he's not perfect, to which John Wesley cleverly said, well, just keep reading in the passage, verse 15. Let those of you who are mature, which by the way, that's the same Greek word that is translated perfect. And so John would say, you see, you can become perfect. Of course, that's not what verse 15 is actually about. Mature is a better translation. And in fact, if anything, Paul is playing a little bit of irony here and saying, for those of you who think you're perfect, this is how you should really think that you're not perfect, like Paul does in verse 12. So the point of all of this is that you can focus so much on religious performance, this is a very, very common problem for humanity, you can focus so much on religious performance that you can begin acting even if you're not consciously believing that you are perfect. Now, there's another problem, by the way. You can also overemphasize faith to the point that there's no works in your life. We'll talk about that next week. But when you begin to measure yourself, and that's part of the problem here, when you begin to focus so much on religious performance in your life, it could lead to either deception 
or despair. I mean, look at Paul. He says earlier in chapter 3, verse 6, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. And on paper, he was. He wasn't actually, it was possible as a Jew to look at the, the commandments of God. And as far as any actual transgressions, sins of commission, you could be blameless. But Jesus comes along and he takes the standard and puts it way above that in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why uh, there's, there's a problem here. You can deceive yourself into thinking that you're much more superior spiritually than you actually are. Uh, you can begin to be judgmental of others in the church, others who seem to be compromised, others who, who seem to be not near as committed as they ought to be. John Newton, the guy who gave us Amazing Grace, wrote a lot about this, and he, he used a lot of these great metaphors about uh, when, a, when, a, when you plant a seed in the ground, it begins to grow, and he talks about the fact that young converts have this tendency, particularly when their Christianity takes off, to think of themselves as much stronger than they really are. And John Newton just says, just give it time. Just give it time. They're overly confident, he says, because they're under-tested. They're under-tested. So that's one of the ways you can deceive yourself. But you can also, it can also lead to despair. And I think you guys can see where I'm going with this, right? Uh, there's really a sense in which people can feel oppressed, as though the message every Sunday is try harder, try harder, try harder. And you go home, and guess what? You're not trying hard enough. You're not trying hard enough. You're not trying hard enough. You're expecting perfection instead of striving for it. And believe me, there is a world of difference between those two. Expecting perfection of yourself versus striving for it. You can become so overwhelmed with guilt, you forget that Jesus is this bottomless dumpster to send your trash into him every single day. And in fact, 2 Peter even seems to warn about that in chapter 1. And this is the problem, too, when people grow up in Christian homes where they primarily know about behavior and they don't know about their heart. You're pressuring people to fly, and they have no wings. And there's a lot of people that leave Christianity because they've never really gotten full circle to what the, really, what the message is. The message isn't primarily about obedience. It's about the need for a savior. <laughs> so this is why we need to be humble. This is why the real message here in verse 12 is we're not there yet, right? We know that. I mean, way long ago, back in like 1,700 years ago, a guy named Augustine said that the church is not a place where the perfect gather. It's where sinners gather to be healed. And so really, what we should be known, known for is being humbly honest, not morally superior. This should be a place where, where we bring our filthy feet every single week and know that Jesus washes them with delight. And where we, according to the Lord's Prayer, are known primarily for our forgiveness. And where we constantly are cleaning each other's feet. We are a community where sin is exposed, not masked over. And not just sin of behavior, but what we like to say here, the phrase, there's not just the behavioral sins that we all have, there's the sin beneath the behavioral sins, the heart sins, the attitudes, the real sin that we want to get at. We want to, we want to get that sin uh, out from the darkness where it's poisoning us, out into the light where we all know it and it can die. 
That's the beauty of this kind of community is that we become this humble community. And here's the thing, because we know Christ, because we know Christ, when sin is discovered in our life, it shouldn't lead to discouragement. It should lead to hope. When sin is discovered in our life, it should lead to hope. It should lead to the kind of certainty that energizes striving. And that's where I think this whole concept in chapter 3 comes, this hope-filled concept. Look at, look at the rest of our verse. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. I press on to make it my own. And man, if there had been a period there, this would have been a depressing sentence. It would have been an oppressive sentence. It would have been oppressive to say, oh, I can never keep up with Paul. But then there's this beautiful little phrase, this wonderful phrase, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. By the way, did you ever, did this come up again? Did we, did we, did we come across something like this before in Philippians? We did in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where the phrase is, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And if there had been a period there, that would have been a pretty intense command, Right? But there isn't a period. There's a comment. It goes on, because God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his own pleasure. Uh, there's, there's this idea simply that our efforts count. Yes, our pathetic, inconsistent, fickle efforts actually count because Christ has made us his own. And that actually helps me work harder as opposed to working less uh, our efforts actually glorify Christ. When you evaluate your progress in the Christian life, have you ever, um, ne never mind, have you ever been discouraged when you evaluate your progress? Am I the only one? In, okay. But the reason you're discouraged is because you stop there. When you really lean into all that Christ has promised us, when you really lean into all that is ours because of, what, of this sacrifice that we're going to celebrate in just a moment and the way the Holy Spirit has taken the sacrifice of Christ and applied it to the whole realm of our existence. All the promises of God secured by Christ, activated by His Spirit, these promises give us courage and they energize striving in us. That's why this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, that Jason read for us, he it was such a long passage, I couldn't have him read the whole chapter. Uh, but if you start the chapter in, uh, at the very beginning, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel. The gospel I preach to you. The gospel which, by the way, you didn't just hear it, you actually bowed to it. You received it. You, you welcomed Christ into your life. This is the gospel that enables you to stand. Stand where? Stand what? Stand before whom? To stand before a holy God. And by this same gospel, you are now being more saved than the day that you believed it. If you hold fast, we're going to talk about that next week, about holding fast. But then notice how the chapter ends. It, it talks about holding fast as well. Be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that because of Christ, knowing that what you're doing counts, it's not in vain. So that's the beginning and the end of chapter 15. What's in the middle of chapter 15? 50 some odd verses about the bodily resurrection of Christ. 
What's going on between these two bookends? Why is he talking so much about these specific details of the resurrection? It's because of this. Your seemingly vain efforts. By the way, for just a second, do you ever do this with the Bible? Uh, Look at the last verse again. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why would God write a verse to us like that? Because you know what we feel like most of the time? That our labor's in vain. Yes. (laughs) And so... God writes this verse and he says, I'll tell you why your labor is not in vain. Because all the work of Christ is your work now. All your work is in his, all his work is in yours. When Christ rose from the dead, it means that you'll rise from the dead. Because you're in Christ. Remember in Philippians, the most commonly repeated phrase is that when you give your life to Christ, it's not so much that Jesus gets in you, it's that you get all into all of Jesus and all of his benefits. So as certain as the resurrection is, so is certain our futile, seemingly meaningless labor is not in vain. That's the message there. Have you ever had a goal that you've been pressed, pressing toward in your life? You know, something that's really meant something to you. And you've really strained, like, like it says here in Philippians 3, where he, he, um, he says in verse, uh, uh, where is it here in verse 14, I press on toward the goal. In fact, twice he says he presses. At the end of 13, he says, I strain forward to it. You ever had a goal like that that's really just animated you? Well, several years ago, actually several decades ago, um, I was working for an organization, uh, a ministry, that, uh, an international organization that reached out to college students known as Campus Crusade for Christ. Most of you know it affectionately as CREW, Brian and Robin being our representatives uh, in that same organization today. So I conducted an experiment with another guy who was on staff with crew and a student. I conducted an experiment in a basement. Now I should say it was a basement. You see, we lived in a fourplex uh, in Boise, Idaho. We were in the upper quadrant of it, two apartments on the bottom, two apartments on the top. This thing was so old, they didn't have electricity in it when they first built it. So on the back side, you could go down this very steep stairway that went all the way down past your apartment, all the way down past the next apartment into a basement. This basement had a single light bulb floating from the rafters, (laughs) all dirt, and we never went past the light bulb's distance. (laughs) It would have been a perfect uh, scene for a horror flick. So the experiment involved three things, a bench, a cassette player, and a poster. In case you're wondering, a cassette player is a machine (laughs) that 50% of the time plays music and 50% of the time eats music. (laughs) Now, here's the music that we played. I don't even have to tell you, right? You know. Yeah, I mean, and by the way, there was the first movie, and then there were a lot of pale attempts afterwards. 
purists never watched after the first one. Um, so we played this music. The bench was a weight bench with some free weights on it. And this was what we were reaching for. It was all about the poster. And this experiment went on for several years. And as you can tell, it failed. <laughs> but, like any human goal, we were giving it our all. But there's a huge problem. There's no certainty in it. And haven't you felt that so many times in human goals? <laughs> There's just absolutely no certainty that all of your effort is going to get you to the end to which you're reaching forward. And so Paul says something amazing here that's supposed to energize us and give us, uh, give us hope that energizes. In verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, these phrases are everything here. What is it? It's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Who is drawing us into this goal? God is. God's the one who put this in our heart to press toward it. And God is actually calling us, like swimming toward a whirlpool. We're actually getting sucked in toward God. And it's a call that's not based upon us, it's based upon in Christ Jesus. It's this huge vortex when you come to Christ. The Father is reaching out to you through the sacrifice of the Son and the work of the Spirit, and He is just calling you in. This is, this is meant to just get you up in the morning and to get you through in the morning and enable you to keep pressing toward that goal because unlike these human goals that are not, sometimes not much more than a poster and a whole lot of deception, uh, this is a goal that is certain. This is a goal that is absolute. Which leads me to really the question I want us to end on or sort of the, the idea... The, uh, at least an observation I've made, and I want to be very clear about this. You may, you may not be in this category I'm about to say. But here's the thing I, I've discovered, that this heavenly call for a lot of believers is not an energizing preoccupation for them. Why is that? Maybe it is for you. Maybe it really is for you. And if so, boy, I am grateful for you, but I'll just say this. In my experience in ministry after all these years, it seems to be the exception. Why is this heavenly call not this energizing preoccupation for most of us, which, which Paul is giving so the picture here? And one question is, it's because our lives are not miserable enough. I mean, where did most of the spirituals come from in the, in, the, in the history of church music? Where did most of the spirituals that talked about the promised land, about going over Jordan, where did they come from? The slave community. So maybe that's partly the answer. Our lives are not miserable enough. But I actually think that's a misleading answer. I'll tell you why. Because 
Heaven is not just the end of something we can't stand. Heaven is the beginning of something that we ache for right now and feel so frustrated that we can't have. Those are two completely different approaches. Heaven is not so much the end of the misery of, of earth. It's an ache for something we're already experiencing. I think the primary reason why this heavenly call is not an energizing preoccupation for most of us is because it's underemphasized in the teaching of the church, in my experience. Um, it's very underemphasized. And secondly, the counterfeit idea that we talked about last week, it's in the very air we breathe. It's all over the place. And what is that counterfeit scam? That paradise is here. Paradise is here. This is what's really real. What I can see, feel, taste, touch, smell, that's what's real. And if, uh, if 14 is speaking about the upper call, then this is the call from below. In fact, look at how our chapter goes on in verse 19. We'll come to this again next week. He says, there are people whose God is their belly, their glory is their shame, because their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in a different place. We're constantly thinking of our homeland, is the idea from Hebrews 11. And here's the other thing about paradise, about heaven. If we're really honest, because some of you have been really honest with me, and I wish more of you would be really honest, we're having a hard time getting excited about something that's so unknown. It's like telling people, hey, go get hugged by a cloud. It just doesn't do anything. It just feels like, what is this thing, heaven? And then the scariest thing about heaven for most people who are really honest, it's forever. Oh, and then there's this dying thing that kind of is between there. You know, I don't mind going to heaven, but it's a dying thing. I'm really, I get that. Yeah. You know what's strange about all this, though, is that when you read the New Testament, and I would just encourage you to watch for this. You know, it's amazing how easy it is to read the Bible and miss stuff. You know, for example, here's an assignment. This week, how many Volkswagen bugs are on the road? More than you think. They're not as common as they used to be, thankfully. Um, but they're out there. So let me just give you a couple examples. 1 John chapter 3. Virtually every New Testament author... Uh, talks about this heavenly call. John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we, sinners, get to be called children of God. And so we are. We are because of Christ. And then he says, There's a reason the world doesn't get this. There's a reason the world doesn't see you as a child of God. You see, they don't recognize you because they don't recognize God. That's how the verse goes on to say it. Verse 2. Beloved, right now we are God's children. And what we will be has not yet appeared. It's hard to get your head around what it's going to be like to be perfect someday. But get this. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. And then here is a phrase. Oh my goodness, these because phrases. 
If you remember anything today, watch for these phrases. Again, if this because phrase wasn't there, this verse would lose so much. Did you know that when you see Jesus, in that moment of seeing him, you will, the sight of him will be so transforming, you will be exactly like him. Right now, you have about 5% of him because that's all you can see through the cloud of it all. No wonder the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Which, verse 3, if you hope on this, if you fixate on this, if you're preoccupied with this, guess what? It will transform you. It will energize you. It will cause you to strive to reach out for this thing. I, I uh, taught through First Peter at least once, if not twice before. I don't know if it was at this church or another church. But um, to my shock and surprise, I remember it was almost uh, probably the 13th or 15th, 20th message, whatever, before I started realizing something, having read through those five chapters over and over and over and over again, I began to underline every single time it started to talk about the upward call or the heavenly glory in chapter 1 alone, 12 times. In chapter 2, 3 times. In chapter 3, 6 times. In chapter 4, 5 times. In chapter 5, 6 times. All of these references, they were just embedded in the language and I was missing it. I was, I was, was under-preaching it, not even realizing it. And then when you look at how First Peter starts and how it ends, he doesn't call them Christians. He calls them exiles. Don't forget your citizenship is in heaven, your exiles. And by the way, friends, after you've suffered a little while, this earth, the God of all grace is going to do something amazing to you. He's, the God who called you into his eternal glory in Christ will restore, comfort, strengthen, and establish you. To him be earthly dominion forever and ever and ever. It's as though Peter was saying, guys, would you just let your imagination run wild? I know you're suffering right now. I know you're struggling right now. I know you're striving right now. I know the goal seems unreachable. And it just goes on and on. You know, it's not, uh, not just First Peter, but think of the last book of the Bible, Revelation. It was given as a roadmap, or maybe a hope map is a better word, for struggling Christians. And what is... All these, all these symbols and all these weird things, we get so distracted by revelation. I think we, we're, we're so busy trying to figure out what the bark is on the tree, we're missing the forest. And the forest of revelation is the fact that all this upheaval that's happening in human history is driving toward one goal, heaven coming to planet Earth. Read Revelation 21. God doesn't say that man's going to make his dwelling with God. It says God's going to make his dwelling with man. It speaks about the new Jerusalem coming down to earth. That's what Jesus was talking about in all the parables. It's all over the place in the New Testament, this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In fact, what were we taught to pray on a daily basis? Oh, Father, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, which means what? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why verse 13 has this picture of sort of straining forward. Uh, Paul just extending himself as the furthest possible reach for what lies ahead. So I'm convinced that one of the ways we can be more energized by our heavenly calling to extend our reach 
is to basically understand that what lies ahead can be sampled by what lies around. We're already getting hints of heaven if you're open to it and can watch for it. Hebrews 11.13 speaks about all of these believers. In fact, uh, let me just read one verse for you out of Hebrews uh, 11 here that pictures this so beautifully. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them, they didn't receive them, but they could see them and greeted them from afar. They couldn't get the whole, they weren't there yet. They didn't see the full fulfillment of all that Jesus was going to do, but they could begin to taste them from afar. And it says, having a knowledge that they were strangers and exiles on earth. And then it goes on to speak about all of these acts by faith, by faith, by faith. These are all experiences of people tasting a little bit of the promise of God coming true. Hints of heaven, hints of thy kingdom come, happening little by little. In fact, uh, joy, we've talked about joy as contented anticipation in the book of Philippians. What is Hebrews 12, the next chapter, by the way, after Hebrews 11? It works that way. When you have it 11, a 12 comes right afterwards. Uh, it says that Jesus could despise the cross because of what was set before him, the joy that was set before him. I love what C.S. Lewis does with joy. When he's converted, he writes a book about his conversion. And you know what the title of it is? Surprised by Joy. Listen to just one comment. It was a sensation, a desire, but a desire for what? Before I knew what I desired, the desire itself was gone. The whole glimpse withdrawn. The world turned commonplace again, only stirred by a longing for the longing that had just ceased. An unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I know that sounds weird. Hold on a second. An unsatisfied desire, which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. Remember what Paul says, I count it all but rubbish. I've tasted just a little bit. And then he goes on to say, I call it joy, Lewis says. A visitation, the moment of clearest consciousness when we become aware of our fragmentary nature and ache for that impossible reunion. All joy reminds. It's never a possession. Always a desire for something longer ago or further away are still about to be. I wonder how many times this week the Lord will give you just a drop of joy. Just a hint of heaven that it really is real. But here's the thing. Let's take something as profoundly powerful as intimacy. We sometimes taste int intimacy in marriage. Sometimes we can taste it in a friendship. Sometimes you can taste it in a, uh, as a parent to a child or as a child to your, to your parent. But that taste becomes bitter if that relationship becomes ultimate. That taste becomes bitter if you turn that temporary relationship into an ultimate relationship. These hints of heaven are just temporary samples pointing us to what's coming. 
intimacy with the Father, Son, and the Spirit, which will overflow into all human relationships. Something vastly richer and, and more real than sex, but something to which sex points toward. So rather than falling for the scam of trying to hold on to your best experience of intimacy, be grateful for it, hold it loosely, and know that it points towards something that is of surpassing worth beyond that. That's the calling here, I think, of this uh, upward call. I have an office in my basement, and uh, in the mornings I look at this picture. And it reminds me of a place we used to live, not this exact place. <laughs> it's, this is very much a paradise version of this place we used to live. And uh, I've thought many times of, oh, I just wish I could you know, go back there, live there, kind of dream, you know, have this romantic notion of life. And, um, uh, and so I look at this picture and I think I have two choices. I can either ache for that right now and eventually it will dry up because I'll either die or it will. Or I can realize what I had back then was a sample of something that will outlast this and out-beautify this and out-experience this. And so I try to say every day when I look at this picture, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what do you look forward to? What gets you up? And what gets you through? Why don't you take a moment, think on that, and then I'll transition us to communion here. And while you're taking a moment to reflect on the Lord, I'll invite those participating in worship and serving to come forward. So even at the Last Supper, Jesus points his disciples to this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says, I tell you something, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. They were about to go through the, one of the darkest night of the soul, just moments after Jesus said this. And it was as though Jesus said, let me just give you an anchor of joy in the future to hold on to because you are about to be whiplashed through absolute terror. Hold on. Because just as real as we're sitting here drinking this cup and eating this bread right now, oh man, it's just a foretaste. It's just a hint 
of the marriage supper of the Lamb that's going to go on forever and ever and ever. So as you come this morning, and I invite anybody who knows Jesus as their Savior and Lord to come and take a bread and cup today and come down the center aisle, and then I'll lead us uh, in taking it in just a moment. But perhaps it's a good day for you to just ask the Lord to open your mind, to open your heart, to open your imagination to the hints of heaven that are all around you so that this upward call of God in Christ Jesus can become more real and more energizing to help you strain toward that goal, that goal that is absolutely certain because of this sacrifice. So let's pray. Father, even now as we take a bread and cup, as we remember the sacrifice of your son, help us in these tangible eating and drinking moments to begin to taste the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray.